Hello and welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz. We are in the middle of an unprecedented time of anxiety, depression and worries because of the global coronavirus pandemic. It's affecting people's jobs, a sense of security and relative predictability, which is consequently affecting our relationships, our health, especially mental health. I think it's safe to assume we wish for this to be over as soon as possible and that we could be in a different reality. To a certain extent, for a few moments, that's actually possible if you have virtual reality equipment. Virtual reality can have a literally healing effect. Over 5,000 studies by today have shown the efficacy of VR for pain management, PTSD, eating disorders, mental health and more. In this episode, you will hear from Dr. Brennan Spiegel, a gastroenterologist who directs the Cedar sinai Center for Outcomes Research and Education. Dr. Spiegel recently published a book titled VRX, in which he explains the applicability of VR and looks at this digital therapy from a philosophical and critical point of view. In this discussion, you will hear him explain what makes VR so healing, what are its potential side effects, and why different patients respond differently to the therapy. Enjoy the discussion and to hear other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. If you haven't yet, do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. Now to VR. Brennan, you are a gastroenterologist specialist by background, but the digital health space knows you because of the research in the use of virtual reality in medicine. You direct the Cedar Sinai Center for Outcomes Research and Education, which is a multidisciplinary team that investigates how digital health technologies which includes wearable biosensors, smartphone applications, VR, and social media, can strengthen the patient-doctor bond and improve outcomes and save money. So I wonder, given the vast space of the research that I just mentioned, do you still have any time for gastroenterology? Well, first, thanks for having me. And yeah, I still do see patients. And, you know, everything I learn in digital health I try to apply in my clinical practice too. And often the insights I get from clinical practice will inform the decisions I make in terms of what to research in digital health. So yeah, they're very symbiotic. You recently wrote a very comprehensive book about virtual reality. And I want to start with some of the interesting things from there. So how does VR help deliver babies? 
So thanks for mentioning the book. Uh, the book is called VRX. So how virtual therapeutics will revolutionize medicine. And uh, yeah, so you mentioned childbirth. There's been some studies and we've done one of those studies at our hospital using virtual reality during uh, childbirth to help with uh, pain discomfort management and potentially as an alternative to using spinal epidurals during the procedure. Now, it's easy for me to say because I've never given birth, but we have tested virtual reality with a number of patients and conducted a randomized controlled trial using a form of virtual reality where women undergoing childbirth can go into virtual reality and they enter uh, sort of a beautiful forest. And then as they breathe slowly in and out, the microphone in the headset can detect their breath. And then as they breathe in and breathe out, they can breathe life into the forest, for example, or change the environment around them. And it's like a form of Lamaze breathing, which we know is very effective for managing the discomfort of childbirth, but doing it in an immersive virtual reality world. And we are able to show that it can reduce the pain associated with childbirth. And another study at the University of Michigan showed not only does it reduce the pain, but people feel like time goes quicker. It accelerates the perception of time in childbirth. So some women felt like the childbirth was shorter than it actually was while they're in virtual reality. How does the preparation for such a procedure look like? Because I imagine that patients are still very much unaware that uh, this is in research. So how do you choose women that would undergo childbirth under such circumstances? I'm not an obstetrician. As you mentioned, I'm a gastroenterologist, but we work with our obstetricians. Uh, Melissa Wong and Kim Gregory are two women who are led this study and are um, also obstetricians. And so they actually have been using virtual reality even outside of research in, with women who feel that this would be a good option or are looking to avoid epidurals as much as possible uh, and are seeking other alternative approaches. And it is interesting, you know, not just with childbirth, but other uses of VR. Some people are very open to it and others are more hesitant, as you might imagine. You know, as I said before, I've never given birth and I never will. But for me, I might feel uncomfortable having my eyes blindfolded, even though when you're blindfolded, you're seeing incredible worlds. I might want to have more control over my, that's just sort of how I am. I don't know if I would have gone for that or not. Whereas other people are very comfortable wearing the headset and, and prefer it to not wearing the headset. So I think it has a lot to do with the preferences of individual patients uh, and how their brains work, really. There are several indications for VR therapy, pain management, lowering blood pressure, even treating PTSD, treating eating disorders, mental health. So can you tell us a little bit more, how do these treatments look like? So what do patients see? How do you choose what kind of virtual environment you're going to put them in? There must be tons of research done in that realm. So how does the discovery process on what is appropriate for which indication? How does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. And it brings up this broader idea of, you know, what is VR anyway? And how is it working? VR is not, it's, that's like saying, how do medicines work? You know, that's not a really a helpful question, because there's so many different medicines, which medicine are you talking about? 
Same thing with VR. To me, virtual reality is like a syringe. What I mean by that is it's not the syringe that matters. It's what medicine goes through the syringe that matters. You inject a medicine into the body using a syringe. But what matters is what medicine are you putting in? So virtual reality, it's not so much the hardware. It's what are people seeing, feeling, experiencing, hearing, the software that makes a difference. So we have to pick the right software for the right patient at the right time. And it very much depends on what we're trying to manage. So for example, you know, we've been talking about pain, but you know, something else completely different, like somebody who's had a stroke and cannot move their hand or their arm. There's very specific software in virtual reality where people can learn how to reuse their arm or their limbs using a form of rehabilitation therapy in virtual reality. That's completely different than using virtual reality for chronic pain. So for example, in chronic pain, We want to teach people skills, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for how to uh, manage their pain, um, how to perceive their pain differently. And that we have a whole CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy software program with over 50 different experiences. That's different from somebody with acute pain who might just be at the dentist or are going through a spinal tap in the emergency department. There, we're not going to teach somebody cognitive behavioral therapy. We just want to distract them, put them on a beach, put them in a forest, put them somewhere where they can imagine that they're somewhere else and just be distracted. So, you know, we can talk for an hour about all the different ways of using it, but those are just some examples where it really depends on what we're managing. So how do you achieve lasting effects of VR? You know, so you wrote that VR is changing the perception when you experience it. Um, so if I try to think a little bit, if you go on a holiday, you might relax because you're in a different environment. Your mind is away from the issues of everyday life. But when you come back from a holiday, you know, slowly or quickly, all that creeps back into your life. So the same with VR, you're going into this alternative universe, but then you come back and nothing has changed. Right. And sometimes that's true. But sometimes people have learned something new in the VR that they can take with them outside of the VR. So for example, Uh, and I tell this story in the book, there was a patient who I was asked to see because she had a very severe abdominal pain, you know, stomach pain. And, you know, everything, all the tests were normal, the CT scans and the endoscopy and the laboratory tests, all of them were normal, but she had very severe pain. And so we use virtual reality in the hospital and we had her swimming with dolphins underwater. And after about four or five minutes, she started to cry. And I said, oh, is everything okay? And she said, yes, everything's fine. I think I know why I have this pain. I said, really? Tell me more. And she said, well, I think it's because of my brother. My brother had stomach cancer, and I think I have stomach cancer too, and I'm going to die. And I said, but you don't have stomach cancer. We looked. We put a camera in your stomach. We didn't see any cancer. And she said, I know that. I know you guys keep telling me that, but I haven't been willing to accept it. But now these dolphins, they're telling me I need to accept it. I need to move on. She said, I could have been in therapy for a year and I wouldn't have figured this out. But somehow these dolphins are telling me this and I need to move on. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm a gastroenterologist, not a psychiatrist. But somehow this experience had changed the way she thinks about her own body. 
And afterwards, she said her pain was gone and she wanted to go home. And so that's an example where life did change for her and it stayed changed because she had an insight. Now, it doesn't always work like that. But other times, what we hope is that people can learn that their brain does matter. You know, that this is not a new idea, by the way. This has been 10,000 years of Buddhist meditation and transcendental, spiritual, you know, religious disciplines that the brain and the mind do have some control over the body. But it's hard to learn how to do that, to be like a monk, you know, in a cave somewhere learning to meditate. Virtual reality allows people to very quickly discover that their mind matters. And sometimes that discovery alone can help people have sustained lasting benefits. In the book, one of the things that you mention as an advantage of VR is the fact that while it has positive effects similar to meditation, um, the difference is that compared to mindfulness or meditation, where one needs to put a lot of effort in to uh, master the technique and to see the success of practicing, in VR, you don't need any of that. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Buddhist monks, for example, will spend over 40,000 hours practicing to meditate. And it's remarkable if you look at their brains with a functional MRI scanner, for example, during meditation, how they can shut down parts of their brain. And the part that they shut down is the part that's called the default mode network, neurologically. And that is the part, it's actually a network in the brain that controls the inner voice that we all hear. And we hear this voice that talks to us. And sometimes that's good. We can strategize and prepare and think about the day. But sometimes our voice can ruminate, can be invasive, can judge us, judge other people, cause stress, anxiety. And so if we can shut that voice down, then the rest of the brain can wake up. And it looks like virtual reality is able to help shut down that ruminating mind. Uh, in a similar way, it's ca it's called a cyberdelic instead of a psychedelic. In the book, you mentioned how VR does in some aspects have similarities with psychedelic experiences because both approaches cause altered state of consciousness. So I was really wondering, you know, psychedelics are still controversial despite the fact that there are startups that are approaching them from the pharmaceutical perspective, trying to determine the exact dosages of psychedelics to make them prescribable. But do you think that based on the research that's been done in VR and based on the findings about the positive effects of altered state of consciousness, that could potentially have an indirect effect on how psychedelics are perceived in medicine. Yeah, I think so. Um, in fact, there's been some interest in combining the two so that people on psychedelics can also use the cyberdelic or use the virtual reality. And the idea there is one of the biggest risks of psychedelics is an uncontrolled uh, experience, a bad trip as people call it. And mm -hmm. that has to do with, with what um, psychedelic researchers call the set and setting. So before you start a psychedelic, you have to establish with the user a very safe environment, have a guide who can bring people through the experience in a safe way. So that's the idea of set and setting. With virtual reality, it could standardize the experience a little bit, uh, have a standardized um, 
sounds, standardized visual experience that might help smooth out the psychedelic experience. So some psychologists and psychiatrists are experimenting with combination therapy of VR plus, for example, ketamine, which is a currently available psychedelic that we use quite frequently, not as powerful as LSD or psilocybin, for example, but does have the same effects as those, just less powerful. But it may definitely open our eyes to this notion of non-dual consciousness. And what we mean by that is normally we think as our, ourselves as different from others. There's a duality. I am me and you are you and we're different. But when you break that down with a psychedelic, we tend, you know, we might feel like the same person or I might become a tree and literally believe that I am a tree or I be believe that I am sound. And it's bizarre, but it happens when our ego temporarily dies. And that is a, an amazing thing because by dying, you can come back to life stronger and recognize that, you know, you, you may not be as alone as you think. And you may not be necessarily as important as you think, by the way. And so that insight can be brought to us through virtual reality to some degree, if it's used correctly, not everywhere, not every time, not necessarily as powerfully as a psychedelic, but we can touch that insight. And that alone can be very powerful and last long after the headset comes off. You mentioned several specialists that are experimenting with the use of VR in combination with other things. So I wonder, 5,000 studies about the scientific validity of VR have been published so far. In your hospital, uh, the Cedar Sinai, you've been researching this for the last five years. So is this already an established part of the clinical practice can patients count on having access to these therapies? Yeah, great question. Um, and we're actually in a transition period right now. We're establishing a full-time clinic, clinical practice dedicated to virtual reality rather than just a research program. So I'm a researcher, and so we do research, although frequently we're asked to help outside of research. And we'll go and help where we can. But, you know, that's not always easy, particularly with a pandemic and with staffing issues. So we are now creating a virtual reality clinic where people can get their care both in the hospital and outside of the hospital as outpatients. Um, but it's a work in progress. So even at Cedars-Sinai, where we do all this work, we're still standing up, you know, the full clinical service. There are many hospitals, though, that are different from us that don't do any research But they do offer the clinical treatment options. For example, in the emergency room, there are emergency rooms that use VR to help just calm people down. Or in some cases, they're so full, people can't get a room and they're in a gurney in the middle of a hallway. So they can use virtual reality there. That's one of many examples where people are using VR outside of research in therapy sessions for phobias, anxiety, uh, and so on eating disorders even. And there are many startup companies that are supporting um, clinicians to use VR in a more scalable way. In a recent interview, you mentioned that one of the questions that 
we need to answer now is do we have the necessary resources to offer VR to the patients as a therapy alongside traditional medicine? So I really wonder, you know, is there any structure already in place that would enable that? There's also the question of what kind of equipment to use because the industry has diversified significantly. We also have very cheap options of VR where you can use a smartphone with a cardboard. So are those types of equipment also something that can be used? Yeah, so it goes back to the idea of the syringe. You know, you want to have a good syringe, right, that injects the medicine appropriately and safely. You know, I've been a little resistant to use Google Cardboard or some of these really less expensive headsets because of the risk of cyber sickness or simulator sickness where people can get nauseous and dizzy because the frame rate of the visual is too slow or the processing speed is too slow. You know, the Oculus Quest, Oculus Go, Pico G2, HTC Vive, these higher end all in one headsets are faster. And uh, they're, they're not cheaper though, but they're faster and have a lower risk of dizziness, cyber sickness, that sort of thing. So that's the first thing I'd say is we don't want to make people sick in virtual reality if we can help it. By the way, that's why we don't put people on roller coasters or have rapidly moving scenes. Most of what we use therapeutically is a very calm, stable environment with a stable horizon so people don't start to get cyber sickness because it can actually be very panic-inducing for some people or cause people to be very, very, very sleepy and, and tired and, and exhausted. So we don't want that if we can avoid it. But anyway, your question is a broad one about what do we need to do? And part of it is picking the right equipment. Part of it is cleaning that equipment, you know, making sure it's it's safe with infection control and decontamination if we're going to reuse it. Some of it has to do with training the right people to do that kind of work. Another is who is the clinician who's going to do this work? I call that person the virtualist. Who is the virtualist? Is this a doctor? Is it a nurse? Is it a social worker? Is it a psychologist? These are all open discussions right now. And then who's going to pay for all of this? Is our insurance companies going to pay for it? They're very interested and they're looking very closely at paying for this. I can tell you that. But as of right now, for the most part, insurance does not reimburse virtual reality. So these are all some of the challenges that we're facing. Yeah, I guess we're still uh, at the beginning of a very exciting journey, despite the fact that this is a field that's been researched for over 20 and even more years. One of the things that I also thought about was that, you know, we talk about VR therapy for very serious indications, and we compare that to pharmaceutical therapies. So where are pharmacists in all this story? You know, so clinical pharmacists, are they also going to be educated? And you you mentioned the issue yourself. Are we going to have doctors that are going to be specialized for VR? Or is VR going to be just one of the therapies that the doctor is going to be able to choose from the formulary? That's partly why I named my book VRX, because if virtual reality is a therapy, then we need a VR pharmacy. We need to have a selection of digiceuticals instead of pharmaceuticals that as a doctor, I can reach into the shelves, so to speak, and pick the right digiceutical for the right patient at the right time. And in many cases, this is not instead of a pharmaceutical, but in it, together with a pharmaceutical or a traditional therapy to help augment or improve 
traditional therapies. So I would want to make sure listeners don't think that I think it's some kind of a magic wand that, you know, makes medicines unnecessary or will cure all these major diseases without any side effects. It's not true, but there's certainly evidence it can help us sometimes without medicine, sometimes in partnership with pharmacists and, and of course, doctors. The pharmacists have been very interested in this for the reasons that I just described. And I think a lot of pharmacists recognize that we overuse medicines. In fact, sometimes they appreciate that more than doctors do. And they're very open to options like this that can either augment treatment effect or replace treatment effect of pharmaceuticals. So I've had a lot of great interest from pharmacists um, around this VR research. In the book, you also mention an interesting thing, which is that age can be related to the efficacy of the therapeutic of VR. So for example, an older person that never used VR before might react much differently compared to someone that's younger and maybe used VR for gaming, so is familiar with the VR experience. Can you maybe share an example of that? It can be from the book itself. There are many factors, age being one of them, that may impact someone's experience with virtual reality. So age is one. I'll mention another in a second. But age is one. And we have found, you know, there's a digital divide. People that grew up with the internet and people that didn't. I grew up, there was no internet of any kind. So I'm sort of right in between these. I'm right on the digital divide. Um, you know, I, I learned to type on a typewriter not on a computer. Computers were barely anything when I was growing up. There, there were none. So the point is that older individuals have more hesitancy about using it. But on the other hand, they have lower expectations about technology in general. And we find that they are, in some cases, just completely blown away. So, you know, an example is, and I talk about this in the book, one older gentleman who had pain and we brought him to Hawaii in the headset And he was so immersed in it and blown away by it that when we took the headset off, he, for a moment, was wondering if he had literally traveled to Hawaii. I said, no, no, of course you didn't travel there. You were right here in the hospital the whole time. He said, but it really felt like I was there. I said, but you know, no, you weren't actually there. Like Star Trek, you know, we didn't beam you to, to Hawaii. But it, the funny thing is the same day I used the same headset or maybe the same software in a, in a young person and he wasn't impressed at all. I mean, he's like, yeah, well, that's great, but can I play a first person shooter game? That's what I really want to do, you know? So naturally different people have different expectations. But the other factor that's very important is this idea of immersive tendencies. And the idea here is that some people's brains become very easily immersed in activities. So, for example, some people who love to read get lost in a book. And if you call their name, they can't hear you. Or they're watching a sports game and they can't hear you because they're immersed completely in it. And there are, is an immersive tendency. And people with high immersive tendency tend to become immersed in virtual reality also in a much more profound way. And that cuts across ages. So there are factors like that, too, that we need to think about. And we're starting to get better at measuring some of these factors as well. In the book, you also talk about virtual pharmacies, which we already touched upon earlier. So I wonder, how big is it? You know, and where, where do you get all the, the landscapes? Do companies approach you? Do you approach? So we have a website. It's virtualmedicine.org. 
uh, or virtualmedicine.health. You can go there. Your listeners can go there to learn more about our VR program at Cedar sinai And very soon, we're going to put up a page, a full directory of companies that are developing therapeutic VR programs, uh, along with programs that we particularly like without any relationship to the companies, the ones that we use for our patients so that people can have resources. I mean, I would love for there to be a real VR pharmacy so that, for example, and I talk about this in the book, what I imagine would be I have an electronic health record. And if I want to prescribe a treatment, I can put that right into the EHR and prescribe, you know, whatever, a pain management uh, treatment program. And then it would immediately um, upload the program or download the program into a headset. And that could be checked out and given to my patient there in the hospital or in the clinic. And it's already preloaded with just the programs that I have prescribed. We don't have that yet. I mean, we have the Oculus Store. And the Oculus Store has, of course, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of programs, most of which have no benefit for health. They're gaming or education. But some of them are excellent. You know, for example, Trip VR. Again, I don't have any relationship with this company, but I love what they make. T-R-I-P-P. That's available right now um, for consumers on the Oculus Store. We also use that with our patients in the hospital. It's an excellent, beautiful program designed to help with meditation and to help with that flow state that we talked about earlier, that sort of psychedelic-like state. So we need to have a VR program, a library that, that's for healthcare, but we're not there yet. We're still trying to figure out how to do that. One thing that is important in my view is also the awareness of the potential negative side effects that VR can have. In the book, you mention confusion of children and the elderly, nausea, rekindling of memories. So how can you avoid these negative effects and how does the preparation of the patient, the assessment, the medical assessment look like? So the first thing I'd say is like any effective therapy in medicine, there's potential for side effects. So this isn't, of course, unique to VR. If you look at any medication, there's going to be side effects. And in a way, that's sort of a sign that it's really doing something. You know, it actually is working. It's not a placebo. So VR has effects on the body, on the mind, and as a result, it can have side effects. And we talked about one earlier, which was the cyber sickness or simulator sickness. But yeah, in, you know, in children, it can create false memories where a child feels like they literally, like that older man I mentioned just now with Hawaii, kids can literally feel like, oh, I actually was swimming with a whale. I really swam with a whale. They believe it. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, if the alternative is to remember a spinal tap or to remember getting, you know, chemotherapy or something. So there's some interesting ethical discussions that I touch on in the book around that. But this idea of how to set people up for it is important. And if we explain before we do it what we're doing and, and how it works and why we think it works, and then after the experience to talk about it and debrief, we can't just leave a headset next to somebody and run away. We need to really, at least for the first time, explain what's happening and work with the patient. Often that can help reduce fears, reduce panic attacks. Uh, I have seen panic attacks. I describe one in the book. And, you know, it, it can be pretty dramatic when it happens. But thankfully, it's extremely rare to see serious, you know, side effects like that. But yes, it's possible. 
at the moment, the patients that are included in these studies mostly, do you see that uh, they go on the consumer side, so they do get some equipment for home use under your surveillance, or is it just done in the hospital? Uh, no, we're, we're actually doing a study right now where we send all the equipment home. We ship it to people, and they get the headset preloaded with software and uh, comes with uh, instruction booklet and other, other material. So right now we're doing a study of people with chronic lower back pain, and they um, are randomized to one of three different types of virtual reality. One of them is the skills-based treatment that I mentioned earlier, using cognitive behavioral therapy. And so in that arm, people can get this home-based treatment where every day for eight weeks, they undergo a treatment. And then they have a booklet where they can answer questions about their experience. We ask them to think about what did they just learn and how could they use that skill in real life outside of the headset. So they really stop and contemplate what they just learned rather than just closing, putting the headset away and leaving. We want them to really think about it How can you use this skill when you don't have a headset on? Uh, and so there's many different skills. We use biofeedback. We use a concentration and, and executive function training and these sorts of things. But that's an example. We, the other arms in that study, by the way, is just purely a distraction VR, like swimming with dolphins, but not skill building. And then the third arm is what we call sham VR. It's not real. It's uh, You wear a headset, but you just watch two-dimensional screens of relaxation, you know, nature, that sort of thing. But it doesn't have an active ingredient, we don't think. Yeah, because it got me thinking that if you have chronic patients that have, you know, relapses, does it mean that you would continuously give them VR? VR can be used in a couple of different ways. So if it's just for like an acute pain, then they could put on the VR headset and just escape to their favorite world. And that's going to be distraction. That's the mechanism. And we're going to sort of just get them through that period. But the goal of the longer term treatment is skill building, learning how to soften your ruminating mind, learning how to achieve cognitive flow, learning how to focus on something other than your pain. These are skills that you would learn with a psychiatrist or psychologist. But many people do not have access to a psychologist or have concerns or don't have time or whatever. People are quarantined now, can't just go easily out and go see a psychologist. With COVID-19, we're seeing a, a secondary pandemic of mental health issues. And so VR could be another option to get mental health to people's homes. So these are reasons why we are exploring all of these opportunities right now. You've done a lot of research about VR. So one of the things that I also wonder is, what is the global landscape of VR if you have uh, the insight? You know, cultures differ. So I imagine that experiences, acceptance, the progress done, the technological advancement is different. That's a really good question that is sort of underexplored. Firstly, VR is being used all around the world, or at least I wouldn't say everywhere, but certainly in Europe, as you know, virtual reality for healthcare has been very established. Professor Mel Slater, University of Barcelona, has done really interesting work. Giuseppe Riva in Northern Italy has done really fascinating work. Um, there's folks all over Europe using virtual reality and research capacities. In Asia, 
uh, University of Tokyo, been using virtual reality for uh, eating for obesity management. And, you know, if you go around the world, you'll find lots of examples of people in universities studying virtual reality. But widespread use, you know, uh, at least in the United States, at least, we've seen good acceptance. Patients are very open to it. It has more, the issue has more to do with distributing and disseminating and paying for it. But we find patients are very open and interested in using VR. I don't have a sense yet of whether that change varies very much from culture to culture or region to region. Like I have no idea how it's being used in India or the Indian subcontinent or in Africa, for example. But those are very interesting questions to explore. In the course of your research, was there any indication that specifically surprised you? What were you most fascinated by? I personally was fascinated by a, an experience I had uh, in virtual reality, which I talk about in the book. Actually, the very the beginning of the book, I tell a couple stories about how I died in virtual reality. I died twice. First, I died jumping off a building. But the second time I died having a complete out-of-body experience. And this was at the laboratory of Mel Slater in University of Barcelona. I talk about how he set me up in this headset and I was in, I looked down and I saw my body, I saw my arms and legs. I had become a, a digital avatar. And then I separated from myself and I floated up to the ceiling and I looked down and I saw my own body down below, motionless, not moving. I was moving, but that body was not moving. And I realized that I was having a complete out-of-body experience. And even though I knew intellectually that I, I, I was still in my body, my brain didn't care. My brain thought, I have just separated. And what was amazing about that and surprising about that is that I still remember that today, you know, three plus years later, as a very transformative moment. Because I came to realize that the process of dying doesn't need to be painful or catastrophic or horrible. I don't want to die, but I learned that dying might actually be a sort of spiritual event or a mystical event. I felt a certain mysticism, for lack of a better word, when I had that death. And it's amazing that Professor Slater has shown that that's in a research study, that that experience can actually reduce fear of death. And I think I do fear death a little bit less, just a little bit. I still don't want to die, so I'm afraid of dying, but just a little bit. And that just shows that VR can profoundly modify consciousness. And to me, that was the most surprising thing about all of this, that VR is not just a gaming platform for kids to play first-person shooter games. It's actually a platform that modifies our perception of the world, our perception of the world around us, and our perception of the world within us. And that's what, to me, makes it such an interesting platform, unlike any other audiovisual medium ever invented. What's your prediction about the development and adoption of VR in the short-term future? You know, let's say a year or two. Do you also see that COVID in some way had an effect on this, just from the general perspective that technologies are perceived differently now by payers and decision makers? There's a few ways to answer that. The first, uh, if just looking at signs of what where this might go, the FDA, for starters, you know, Food and Drug Administration in the United States has now acknowledged that this is a new field of medicine. 
they have a name for it. They call it medical extended reality or MXR for short. And that's an early, very good sign when the regulators see this as a real science. And just a couple weeks ago, the FDA provided a special designation for virtual reality as what they call a breakthrough device for managing pain. And that's another very important and formal designation that acknowledges the science and, and the evidence. So these are good signs that insurance companies may begin to take it seriously and start paying for this. That will be what will determine the future of virtual reality. If it gets paid for, people will start to use it. My fear is it doesn't get paid for, and and it continues to be like this, where it's researchers, it's interested physicians and clinicians occasionally using it, despite the fact that we have thousands and thousands of studies. We really need insurance companies to pay for this for it to explode. And it will explode. I believe that if it starts getting paid for, you'll start to see virtual reality clinics. You might see virtualists who become specialists in using VR, you know, may become a new specialty within medicine. Or maybe that each individual uh, specialty uh, has people that decide that are, to know, use VR and adopt it on the horizon within their practice for and get VR for, for your I don't know, patients. But we need the biggest it to be one is irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, really which is one of the most common conditions in all of humanity. Up to 10% of the world has IBS, recurrent abdominal pain, discomfort, diarrhea, constipation, uh, sometimes stress related, and Uh, It's a complicated disease, but we know that the brain and the gut are connected. And I talk about this a little bit in the book. And uh, we are currently developing a VR treatment for specifically for IBS. And um, it's already been shown that certain cognitive behavioral therapies can help with IBS. And it's just hard to get access to that uh, or find trained clinicians who know how to do it. So we're developing an IBS program right now. And hopefully we'll have that uh, completed in the next uh, six to 12 months. That just gave me a little bit of food for thought about another matter, you know, when it comes to either chronic diseases or a lot of diseases, uh, we often hear that they are very much connected with the mindset, with stress, which is a very broad thing, you know, it's how do you define stress anyway? So it's very important for people to manage their mind in order to influence the body and the other way around. So I do touch on this at the beginning of the book, this idea of embodied cognitions. And and the idea is that, you know, we used to think that the mind and the body were separate and distinct. You know, Rene Descartes said this in 1644, And he imagined that the brain was sort of immaterial and the body was the material like machine that moved the brain around in space. But, you know, that that's wrong. It turns out, you know, the nervous system, the endocrine system, everything in our body is actually a, an extension of our brain. It's the part of our brain that's not in the skull. So it's all one big system, one connected system. The brain's just the part that's protected in a skull and does all the processing. But we, in order to even think, in order to have thoughts, we need to have a body. We need to have muscles and tendons and nerves. We need to have a sensory apparatus. So if we change the brain, we change the body. If we change the body, we change the brain. It's, it's backwards and forwards. And to this day, there's still some resistance in, amongst the medical establishment that there's, you know, oh, we, we say things like, oh, that's all in her head. What does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. That's ridiculous. 
And so I have a little chapter in the book where I kind of trace the history of this thinking. And I talk about the biopsychosocial model and the idea that the mind and the body are connected and with embodied cognitions and that virtual reality is, is just tapping into that reality. It's tapping into the reality that the mind and body are connected and it's actually one continuous system. Perhaps VR differs from other therapies in a sense that it does in some way address the issue. It doesn't treat the symptoms, if you know what I mean. It's more of a psychotherapy kind of an approach where the person is actually trying to change the mind patterns. So could it be? And does the research kind of indicate that VR could lead to discovering the problems, not just treat the symptoms. Absolutely. Yes, that's correct. I mean, virtual reality won't cure cancer. I I don't think so. You know, I mean, I don't want to go that far. But it can certainly change the way cancer is perceived, the pain of cancer, let's say. And in fact, we are using it in people with cancer to help manage the pain and to change the perception of one's body. And, you know, that may have secondary benefits through, uh, you know, immune system function or cortisol or a reduction in stress hormone levels, which can have physiologic effects on the body that are detrimental. Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's going to cure cancer, but it's all connected. So, yes, getting at the root cause of how the brain is perceiving the physical phenomena in the body, that the brain also creates physical phenomena in the body. When we talk about emotions, But we're really talking about our physical experiences, like fear is an emotion. But what is fear? Fear is a rapid heart rate. Fear is dilated pupils. Fear is sweat in your skin. Fear is high cortisol levels coursing through your veins. Those are all physical things, but it starts in the brain. So, you know, VR is is a brain treatment, essentially, and, and that's how it works. One of the things that I really uh, was surprised by at the event that you had uh, when the book was published on 6th October was kind of this emphasis that with the help of VR, medicine is becoming human on a whole new level. Yeah, this idea of uh, VR as an empathy machine, which is a term that uh, Chris Milk came up with, empathy machine. And the idea is that it allows doctors to empathize with their patients in a different way and patients to empathize with themselves in a different way. And so, yeah, I talked about that a bit in the um, that talk I gave a few weeks ago. And, you know, I talk about, for example, a simulation where I um, was in an apartment building and I was in an apartment uh, room and I look in the mirror and I see that I'm a woman. All of a sudden, I've turned into a woman. And now some man walks up into the apartment, he starts yelling at me, and he takes a telephone and he throws it at me, and he's screaming at me, and he gets right up into my face, and he's yelling at me. And I realized, like, I was in a domestic abuse scenario, but this was all in a lab at the University of Barcelona. And I took off that headset, and I was, like, short of breath. I was scared. And ever since then, I think differently when I see a patient who has a history of domestic violence. Of course, I've always sympathized, but I couldn't necessarily empathize. And I still can't pretend to know what it's like to be a victim of domestic abuse, but at least I've had a simulation of it. And it causes me to think differently about what it means to have been through domestic abuse or domestic violence. And that's an example of VR offering the power of empathy 
uh, which I, I could read about it in a textbook, but I actually felt it physically in, in, uh, in virtual reality. This opens up a lot of questions. For example, will medicine, you know, if you go on that path as a doctor, will it become even more exhausting? Because it's already emotionally exhausting and doctors often do not get the psychological support that they should, you know. So is this just an additional burden, you know, if you expect doctors to to give even more, let me put it that way? You know, I, I do think there still is a distinction, as I said, between having had a disease and having imagined effectively what it's like to have a disease. Some doctors, you know, are really so empathetic that they can't sleep at night and it's just difficult to do your job. I think most doctors over time, they learn to maintain some barriers in order just to be effective. And it's kind of paradoxical because, you know, you want your doctor to be caring, of course, but at the same time, you want your doctor to be effective and to be able to make objective decisions that are, are in your best interest. And sometimes, you know, if emotions become too heavy, it can affect the objective judgment of a doctor. So there is a fine line that we always, I think, balance. And we need to be able to sleep at night too, but at the same time feel deeply, you know, for our patients. So that's an interesting area to think more about, really interesting area. And I think the VR kind of challenges us to rethink where that boundary should be. Uh, to redraw the lines in a way that is maybe closer to empathy, but not so close that we you know, we can't do our jobs anymore. A very interesting idea. Which kind of brings us to the beginning of the discussion and the fact that VR can impact anxiety. So maybe doctors, you know, should be the first patients. Yeah, um, that's a good, that's a really good idea. And in fact, there are some medical schools starting to use virtual reality now to teach their students how to be a patient uh, and what it's like to be a patient and how to interact with patients in a way that's more effective and um, provides opportunities for shared decision-making. So time will tell if that leads to better doctors. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash faces of digital health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned. <laughs>